Irina. Of all the diagnoses I ever heard her discuss, FTT is the one that sticks in my mind. She was something of of an expert in the field, the writer explains, and those initials would go on the chart of an infant who often, for unknown reasons, was unable to gain weight, unable to grow. It was the failure to thrive. Sometimes they guess it happens when a parent or caregiver is depressed and the depression seems to get passed down. Sometimes something seems to be off in an infant's metabolism for reasons no one can understand. So FTT is one of those mysterious phrases that sounds like an explanation but explains nothing. It's the failure to thrive. I didn't know why it struck me, he writes. It's so unspeakably sad until he read a theologian's reflection on salvation as described in the Bible. Uh, this theologian explained that, that, that although we tend to think of the word salvation as forgiveness of sins, as escape from punishment, it actually has a much more robust meaning for the writers of Scripture. He writes the simple and wholly adequate word for salvation in the New Testament is Life, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He says, he that hath the Son of God has life. Even when we were dead in our own trespasses, the apostle writes, God made us alive together with Christ. This is the human condition, though, the failure to thrive. To thrive, it's a, it's a life word, a, a word full of shalom, of gospel peace. Thriving is, is what life was intended to do, like a flower stubbornly pushing up through a crack in a sidewalk. It's, it's why we pause and wonder at a human being's first step or a first word and why we ought to wonder at every step and every word. Thriving is what God saw when he made life and saw that it was good. To thrive is the Bible's first command to be fruitful and fill the earth. Is your soul thriving this morning? Are you alive to God? Do you long for God? Do you long to meditate upon God, to hear what he says? Do you view his words as a word of life or as a dreaded obligation? Is it a word of gospel or a word of law to you? Do you long to worship God? Are you hungry for him? Are you hungry for his word? Do you, do you love God? Or is your soul failing to thrive? We're going to read a piece of mail this morning. It was a piece of mail written 2,000 years ago from an apostle, a Jewish guy named Paul, to a young pastor named Timothy. It's recorded for us in our New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 4-2. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible or you can follow along uh, on the projection. Paul writes, For you, however, know all about my teaching and my way of life, and my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, 
Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and with careful instruction. It's the word of our God and Savior through his apostle. What do we see here? The first thing we see here is that Jesus wants our hearts to be aflame with a love for his word. If you can imagine a heart that is truly aflame, a heart that is alive, a heart that is beating and pulsing and living and thriving. You look at his language he uses in, in, in those last couple verses. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and dead, in, in view of his appearing in his kingdom. Hear how he's escalating the seriousness of this charge. Hear the passion. Hear the excitement. He says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. All the time, have the word of God on your lips with great patience, careful instruction. Do you hear that charge? Do you hear the passion? That is a heart that is aflame with the word of God, that believes it has power, that believes it carries hope in a life that otherwise has no hope. The psalmist writes in what Rena read to us, Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. Is that your heart as you speak to God, as you spread his word before you? Do you is your heart aflame with love for the word of God? Oh, Lord, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. For they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers. For I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders. Than the session? Than the elders. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. You know, when a person, a young Christian, they're so dependent, they need somebody to sit down and tell them everything. And they're dependent on their teachers and they're dependent on their elders. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's the church being the church. But, but what we see here is the psalmist has learned not just to ask to be fed, but to feed himself by meditating on the word of God, on the commandments of Christ, meditating on it all day long. And he describes it as sweetness. Prayer for you is that you can press past your own legalistic background to actually taste in your mouth the beauty of the Word of God without all the baggage that you might carry from a previous spiritual background, and that your heart would become inflamed with Scripture in a way that maybe it has never been inflamed before. Because this is about a relationship with God, it's about your story with Him. 
you know, look at verses 14 and 15. He, Paul says, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and what you've become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is about his relationship with Jesus, his relationship with Christ. It's about something that's gradually growing and transforming. It's a part of your story and that kind of relationship. It means a posture before God, a posture that lets God tell you no, that lets God say there's a different perspective, that lets God say you're looking at this wrong, you need to change how you think. I remember R.C. Sproul, a theologian, died this year. how he, decades ago, talked about a friend of her, his from, from seminary who was a pastor, a Presbyterian minister as well. And, and, uh, and he was talking to this friend. He hadn't talked to him in decades. And the friend was like, yeah, R.C., yeah, don't get into all that Bible authority type stuff. I don't believe all that anymore. He looked at him and he said, but, but you're a, a pastor. He's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I really believe the Bible. And he, he looked at him and he said, so what about your relationship with Jesus? He says, oh, don't worry. Jesus is still my Lord. And R.C. just looked at his friend and he said, well, how does Jesus exercise his lordship over you if he can't speak to you through his word? It's how Christ speaks into our life. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Greg. This is sounding very much like a moral straitjacket, like a one-size-fits-all you know, list of do's and don'ts that's going to leave me absolutely enslaved and oppressed the rest of my life. And I want to challenge you that there might be a different way to look at it. Because yes, once you say, God, I do believe that you've spoken. And Jesus, I do believe that the Bible is your word. And so I'm going to put myself under it instead of over it. And I'm going to allow it to speak into my life. Yes, that does bring limitations. But I want you to think, for example, as as Paul speaks about how it's useful for training us in righteousness. And I want you to think about somebody who who is a piano player and how from age five on every single day they are sitting at a bench when they want to be outside playing and they are playing you know scales and chopsticks and all sorts of awful music and they're doing it again and again and again and they're doing what they don't want to do and they're submitting to a limitation that is imposed upon them and what happens then after 10 years after 20 years after 30 years they're able to walk into any concert hall and walk up to any piano and crack their knuckles and sit down and play amazing music they have a freedom to read sheet music on site they have the freedom to 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 play incredible symphonies and harmonies of sound filling up a space and you look at them and you wonder they have such power they have such freedom how did they get the freedom but by submitting to limitations that were for their good, because by submitting to the right limitations, it actually made them more free, not less. You think of a runner who trains, and every morning they're getting up, and, they're, they're, and, and, and every morning she gets up and she puts on her, her sneakers or tennis shoes or running shoes, probably paid too much for them, and she's hitting the pavement, and she's running, and she's running, and she's running until she's absolutely exhausted, and then she goes home and she eats a huge meal because she's just spent a billion calories. And then she does it again the next day. Even though she'd rather sleep in, she'd rather, you know, 
play, play around on Facebook or, or, or Instagram, but instead she hits the pavement and she does what she doesn't feel like doing and she submits to those limitations, those restrictions, and she does it again and again and again. And then after about a year of that, she is running the Boston Marathon and she is getting a record score. How is that possible? It's not about whether limitations take away our freedom. The question is, which limitations actually line up with our human nature? Which limitations actually line up with our design? And which limitations, by submitting to them, actually make us more free instead of less? The cost in any relationship is that somebody has to be able to disagree with us. You know, you've you've heard, I'm sure, the... uh, of the Stepford Wives, the, the movies, plural. Uh, you know, the, the story is the, the men of, of you know, Stepford, Connecticut, decide that they're sick of their wives always nagging at them and telling them about their, their failings and, and not doing what they want. And so they all decide they're going to get rid of the women of Stepford, Connecticut and replace them with robot women. And so these robot women, you know, they're all drop-dead gorgeous. They're all beautiful. They have amazing figures. Their hair is always perfect. They go around, you know, vacuuming the floor while their husbands are at work in high heels and beautiful skirts and, and, and pearls. Uh, it's like a 1950s sitcom almost. And, 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 and they're always ready to do whatever the husband wants. And they always tell the husband how wonderful he is. And they always praise him. And they always agree with whatever he says. And now what do you not have in that kind of relationship? You actually don't have a relationship. Because it's not really a relationship unless she can disagree with you. In which, unless she can say, no, I think you're wrong on this. And that's the cost of a relationship with God, is putting ourselves under him so that he can speak into our lives and tell us we're wrong. It's, it's a relationship where your heart is so aflame with love for God and love for his word. Jesus is so satisfying to you that you are willing to give up control. You are willing to give up the agenda. You are willing to give up your priorities and your comfort and everything else. It's like, it's like that, that, that guy in the story Jesus told where he, he found a field that had this buried treasure, this pearl of incredible price. And, and so he sold everything he had in order to buy that field, in order to get that treasure, because that was the thing that was going to make him happy. That was the thing that was going to make him whole. All his hope was invested in that, and he was willing to give up everything else. That is a heart that is a flame for God, a flame for the Word of God, which is God himself speaking to us. Are you loving God enough to let his word shape you and even tell you when you're wrong? You know, my generation, uh, when I became a Christian in college, you know, we were taught that you have to have a daily quiet time, and a quiet time was a time of, of daily reflection on the Word of God, you know, where you'd open up your Bible and spend half an hour or so in the morning reading a passage and, and praying through it. And uh, But for a lot of Christians in my generation, it became this sort of crushing legalistic burden where you felt like if you actually accomplished this thing and got it checked off your list that God would bless you that day. And if you didn't accomplish this religious task of reading your Bible and praying, then God wouldn't bless you that day. Or it became this performance treadmill in which you felt like if you were reading your Bible every day and you were praying every day, that that you were okay with God. And if you weren't doing that every day, then you weren't okay with God. And it tended to turn some of us really inwards, particularly the more, more sensitive, more intuitive ones, could turn us very inward. And, and actually leave us with a relationship with God that was focused more on our religious performance than on God and his grace, more looking inward to ourselves instead of outward to him. And, and so it's difficult sometimes for me to, to talk about this because um, 
because without doing that, your soul is going to shrivel up and die if you're not meditating on God's word in some form, in some way. And yet, for some of you, particularly the millennials, you know, your, your, your guard goes up so fast because of your background. When somebody gets up in a pulpit and starts talking about, oh, you need to read your Bible. No! And yet, um, the difficulty is it's sort of like a guy who says, I really love this girl. She is fascinating. I'm amazed by her. I want a relationship with her. But please don't make me listen to her. That's legalism. Don't make me read her texts. That's legalism. Yet, no, that's your issue of your performance treadmill that sends you to Jesus. So you can actually go get your heart right with him and get off the performance treadmill and then hear his word of love as he communicates to you in every passage of scripture how much he delights in you and how it's not about you and your performance. Psalm 1, the psalmist says of the blessed man, the happy man, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. This isn't a treadmill. He's not saying this is a religious performance thing that if you perform it, God will bless you. He's not saying your assurance of salvation depends on whether you're doing this religious thing every day. What he's saying is that there is so much blessing for you to be alive to God, to be thriving in your soul, thriving in your life, bearing fruit in season, a leaf that doesn't wither. And all you need is to be by streams of water meditating on God's law day and night, he says. Day and night. We've got a picture. Did we, did we get that slide in there? Is there a picture of Harriet Tubman? That's Harriet Tubman. Uh, Harriet Tubman was a spy who, even in moments of extreme danger, she demonstrated nothing but just raw and calm courage. She was born into slavery in the 1820s, and, and Harriet at one point was nearly killed when her master hurled a metal object at her and almost struck her and killed her. Um, in, the, the, in 1849, Harriet Tubman staged her own escape, and then she spent the rest of her years, uh, well, at least until the end of slavery, uh, rescuing hundreds of other people out of slavery and leading them to safety. Her code name was Moses because she never lost a single escapee, and during the Civil War, she became a secret agent for the Union Army, working behind enemy lines to scout out the territory. Despite a $40,000 bounty on her head, she always managed to evade capture. She was a devout follower of Jesus. Uh, Tubman was illiterate. She could not read the Bible, and yet she spent much of her time learning the Bible and memorizing it and meditating on various verses in the Bible. Even though she was illiterate, she would have others speak and read the Bible to her. She learned songs and stories that were passed down orally about the Bible, about Jesus. Uh, she was filled with the voice of God continually inside of her. Her favorite verse was Isaiah 16:3, where God says, Hide the fugitives and do not betray the refugees. And as she pondered these passages, she, she turned them into prayers. And in her prayer, she learned to practice God's presence. She said this. She said, I prayed all the time about my work everywhere. I was always talking to the Lord. I was always thinking on his word. When I went to the horse trough to wash my face and took up the water in my hands, I said, O oh Lord, wash me and make me clean. 
when I took up the towel to wipe my face and hands, I cried, Oh, Lord, uh, for Jesus' sake, wipe away all my sins. And when I took up the broom and I began to sweep, I groaned, Oh, Lord, whatsoever sin there be in my heart, sweep it out, Lord, clear and clean. Even without the ability to read the Bible, you see a soul that was thriving in the face of intense pressure, intense danger, risking her life every day, but continually in communion with God as the Word of God was inside of her. She was meditating on what He says, and as she was speaking to Him in prayer, expressing her continued dependence, meditating on His Word day and night. She was thriving. More to be desired than much fine jewels, the psalmist writes, a heart of flame for God's Word. Jesus invites you into that life-giving power. Look at the power here in verses 16 and 17 of Paul's letter. He says it's useful. That means you're, you're to put it into action. You use it for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that you can be equipped for every good work. That means that, that, that Scripture has the power to do something that nothing else can do. It has the power to change the human heart. God says through, through Isaiah that my word goes out for me and it does not return to me empty, but it accomplishes the work for which I gave it. That, that God's word in Scripture has a power when the Holy Spirit takes, takes hold of it and takes hold of you. It has the power to change how you think, to change how you feel, to change what you value, to change how you view other people. It can, it can cause a hard heart to become soft and an unforgiving heart to actually forgive. Revives the soul in Psalm 19. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. They make wise the simple. They give joy to the heart. They give light to the eyes. They are more precious than gold, more precious than pure gold, sweeter than the honey, the honey from the comb. This language, not of duty, but of thriving, not of, not of obligation, but of life and gospel and grace. You, know, you should hear these words through the lens of a culture on the edge of a desert when the psalmist describes the man who meditates on Scripture as being like a tree by a stream bearing fruit whose leaf is green, thriving in an arid climate. You know, the, the most, uh, the driest spot on planet Earth is actually the, the Atacama Desert in, in the coast of Chile, Pacific coast of, uh, of Chile. Uh, we've got a picture of that. Can we get that? There is no water here. There is no water anywhere near here. There is no humidity in the air here. It is the driest spot on earth. It never, ever, 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 ever rains at all, except in 2017. We got another picture. Freak rainfall hit the Atacama Desert, and the entire desert was covered with wildflowers and green shrubs. It came to life. The only thing the parched soil needed was water. And maybe your soul is like the Atacama Desert. And you think it's hopeless. And you think it's dead. And you think there is nothing that could ever change it or make it come alive, friends. All you need is water. All you need is the water of Christ's word, his gospel to you, his word of love, and his word of grace. And you will come to life. It's the life-giving power of God's word. That's because of who, who spoke it. All scripture, Paul writes, verse 16 is is God-breathed, is, 
we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, but here Paul is speaking of the expiration of Scripture. It is breathed out. The whole of the graphe, the whole of the writing, is breathed out by God, God who loves you. Above all, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, heaven and earth will disappear, but not one letter, not the tiniest stroke of a pen, will by any means pass from my word until everything has been accomplished. You know, there are a lot of ways to meditate on God's word. It doesn't have to look like a daily quiet time. It can look like, you know, Bible on, on app. It can look like, you know, you know, scripture memory. Oh, that's even worse, Greg. It can look like all sorts of things. It can look like downloading sermons of, of, of guys like, like, you know, Tim Keller or whoever you want, Ray Cortez. You know, but, but letting it get inside of you, not as a task you mark off a list, because that will kill you, but as something that you're letting steep inside of you. It's like, it's like a cup of tea. You have your cup of, of boiling water just off the boil, and, and you can take a tea bag and dip it in once. And there might be a little cloud of, of amber-colored something that gets in there, but it doesn't do much. And you say, okay, well, tomorrow I'll, I'll dip it in again. And the next day I'll dip it in again. I'm having my devotions. And after about a month, you might get a bigger cloud. Uh, but what it means to meditate on God's Word it's not focused on the task of sitting down with the Bible. It's focused on continuing that task throughout your day and throughout your week. It's, it's putting the tea bag in, the boiling water, and letting it sit there and letting it steep. Is the Word of God steeping in your soul? It's the only way you're going to thrive. Is if His Word, His message of grace, is steeping inside of you, coloring you, like a tincture throughout your life, turning your whole life the reddish-brown of tea, the, the beauty of the gospel permeating it. You know, I've shared before, it's sort of like the difference between sailing and rowing and drifting. Sometimes living a life of meditation on, on Scripture is easy. It's like sailing. You know, the wind is in your sails. You don't have to do anything. You just open it up. It's so easy. You don't have to work at all. You just feel so alive. And it's like Jesus on every page is showing you how much he loves you. And your heart is being moved to love him back because you're getting the gospel. Sometimes it's like sailing. Sometimes. Often it's more like rowing. Uh, the, the life you know, under the Lectio Divina. Sometimes it's like rowing where you're having to make yourself do it and it's a lot of work you're going against the wind you're going against the waves the sails there's no wind at all you're having to row and row and it's so much work cracking open your bible and staring at what seems like a dead page that's not doing anything at all for you and yet and yet you keep it up and you keep going to church even when you don't feel like it and you keep going to a community group and talking about the bible and 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 you're getting something out of that and 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 you're 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 finding ways to meditate on 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 scripture throughout your day and throughout your week and and it's a lot of work but god is still doing something in your life and there are times when we actually stop rowing and we can start to drift. If you're drifting, you're giving up. You might still go to church, but you don't really expect anything to happen. You, you've given up on reading your Bible. You've given up on prayer. You only pray when there's something wrong. 
you maybe have given up on a community group. You're just, you're just drifting and not really going anywhere, and it's incredibly dangerous. The author to the Hebrews says, be careful lest you drift, because if you keep drifting, eventually the reality is trials are going to come and you might sink. Oh, that we would spend less time on our phones and more time on the Word of God has incredible life-giving power. It can change you. It can take the most hardened heart and make it sensitive to God. It can take that which is dead and make it alive in order to thrive. All you need is the pure water of the word of Jesus. So how does it happen? How does it do this? Well, it does it because the, the word of God is always and only pointing you to Jesus. The Bible is never pointing you inward on yourself. It is always pointing you outward. Verse 15, Paul explains to Timothy that these words of God are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he's speaking at that point. I mean, the New Testament documents are just being written. They have not yet been collected. He's talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and saying those Hebrew Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus said, those are the Scriptures that testify about me. You know, you can't think of Scripture apart from Jesus. Uh, it's the Word of Christ. Uh, that's what Jesus explained when he got into an argument with a bunch of religious leaders because they were really big on their Bible studies. And they were big on their Scripture memory programs, and they were having their daily quiet time every single morning, and yet their heart was one of performance instead of one of, of, of actually looking to God for grace as the broken, damaged sinner. And Jesus said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that these give you eternal life, but these are the words that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You see, there's only one hero in the Bible. There's only one who can make you thrive, and that's Jesus. It's not a rule book, but a, a love letter. I remember Leslie Newbigin talking about uh, a conversation he had with a Hindu scholar, and the Hindu scholar, he was in India, was explaining, hey, I've read your Bible, and I don't understand why you think your Bible's a religious book, because we have a lot of religious books in India, and this doesn't look anything like our religious books. What I see in your Bible is an overarching narrative, a story of, of a God who actually pursues a people, and you treat it like it's a religious rule book. And, and Newbigin comments that, that you know, the, this Hindu scholar, he got it. He got the point. This is not a religious book. This is an amazing story, a love letter from a father who delights in you. It's not a book telling you these are the things you do to get on God's good side so he will bless you. It's saying you can't, but Jesus has already done everything that's necessary to get on God's good side, and he is blessing you. He is blessing you. Receive the blessing and listen to it because it's the word of Christ. It's what Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her her children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, when she says this, she says there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's this baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, then you can see the beautiful picture. It's Jesus on every page of Scripture speaking, saying, come to me. I'm the one who makes you whole. I love you. I delight in you. I forgive you. I defend you. 
I am never going to leave you. I will never forsake you. Come to me. I am the one who will make you thrive. Mark Gallo says only when grace is the first and last word of contemplation can the scars of spiritual sin be healed. Friends, my prayer is that you would come to see the books collected as our Christian Bible, not as a rule book, not as a dry history, but as a message that your life has been folded into, a message of a God who loves the broken, he loves the damaged, he loves the sinful, he loves the shamed, he loves the humiliated, he loves the damaged. He loves those who have bad marriages, who can't pay their bills, and whose life is a wreck. And he loves to open the doors of his church every single week to bid in the broken and the humble and the contrite and the shamed and the weak and the poor in spirit. If you are here this morning and you are spiritually poor, you have nothing to offer God but your sin, then Jesus says you are blessed. Blessed are those who are spiritually impoverished. Because Jesus in his word is here to communicate to you existentially, in reality, his presence. He sees what you're going through. He loves you. He delights in you. And he will never, ever let you go. I'm going to tell you a story about a guy named Basam. In Arabic, the name means one who smiles. Bassam was born in the Middle East into a religious Muslim family, very conservative, traditional family. One of his relatives was a leader in an Islamist organization. And at the age of 18, Bassam joined the group. He explains, I thought I was doing everything I could for God. And after a short time, I started to get some training in using guns and making explosives. I wasn't very comfortable with what I was doing. The thought of hurting people for God's sake didn't sound right to me. I thought that either I or the group must have misunderstood the teachings of God, and so I started to study the Quran and the Hadith all over again with the help of one of the leaders of our religious group to see what have I missed, what am I not understanding. And, and after a couple of years, he writes, I was astonished at what I found because I resigned myself that as far as I could see, the conclusion that our militancy, uh, uh, the, the conclusion I came to is that our, I'm not sure our militancy is a misunderstanding. And so I thought to myself, if, if I have to establish God's will by any means possible, even by threatening to kill people, then I can't see that that's the way of God. And so I lost my faith in the Quran. I lost my faith in Islam. I had a kind of mental breakdown that lasted for quite some time, and I found that everything I'd ever believed, I didn't know what was true and what wasn't. And like a lot of young Arab men, Bassam got involved in the drug scene. And he gave up on religion. The shock came when Bassam learned that one of his closest friends was secretly a Christian. He says, when I found out, I was surprised. Everything I had learned all my life about Christians from my reading of the Islamic writings and Muhammad's opinion about them put them down very much. Yet this friend, he didn't know much Christian theology, but he was full of love for other people. Whatever they did, whoever they were, this we had a mutual friend who was a member of the same group I had been involved in. And he said that, that this Christian needs to be killed because he didn't pay the jizya, which is the, the, the tax that the Quran says must be levied on Christians and Jews under an, Islamic, under an Islamic state. 
He says, but even after this mutual friend said that he should be killed, this Christian friend kept loving this man and dealing with him professionally with incredible respect and incredible kindness. And so I asked him if I could have a copy of the Christian Bible. I started to read the Bible. After starting to read the Bible, I found a very big difference between what the Bible actually says and what I had heard people, Christian and Muslim alike, say that it actually says. I was really struck by one thing in the Bible, namely that there is no one righteous except Jesus. Even those who were called God's people, like David, he was a horrible man. Jacob, he was a sinner too. Abraham, he was a sinner too. The 12 apostles, everyone in the Bible has something wrong with them. The Bible is full of the sins and the wrongdoing of all people, including religious people, everybody except Jesus. And Jesus struck me as the highest example of a human being, one who really deserved to be followed. And it took me quite some time, but eventually I made it through the Bible. And as Bassam read, he he found himself captivated by the person Jesus. Jesus who forgave sinners. Jesus who loved the unlovable. Jesus who defended an adulteress from the judgment of conservative religious leaders. Jesus who promised to never leave us. Jesus who wanted to die for his enemies. Jesus who promises eternal life to everybody who believes in him. He says, after about a year of hard struggle with myself, I decided that I wanted to follow God as he shows himself in Jesus, not as anyone else says he is. And so I prayed to him the one to which the Bible pointed me. And for the first time in my life, I felt like God was there. And to say it was a strange feeling for me would be an understatement. I still remember the very first time I prayed to Jesus and his Father. I ended up running out of the room freaked out because it was the first time that I had ever felt the presence of God and I didn't know what to do with that. Jesus eventually helped me get off drugs. To everybody I knew, I had become a new person. And, and yet he continues to explain that there were troubles. While inwardly Bassam felt a joy and a freedom he never imagined possible, his family found his Bible, and they learned of his faith in Jesus. He writes, I had some trouble with my family, and they kicked me out of the house. My father delivered me to the security forces, and they arrested me and put me in prison for abandoning Islam. I had a very bad time there as they tortured me to try to force me to return to Islam. They used electric shocks. I was beaten. They hanged me from my wrists all night. After a week of this, I was put in solitary confinement for most of a year, but I couldn't deny the one who gave me life. Now I'm out of jail. I've left my home country. I'm still wanted there for apostasy from Islam but I'm still walking with Jesus. I love Jesus. He is my hope. He has made me alive. He loved me first, and he put himself on a cross for me. Now I'm free from everything. I have a lovely wife who I met after getting out of prison and who is supporting me in serving Jesus. But the most important thing for me is that I have my eternal assurance that I am going to be with him forever whatever might happen to my body. It's a life 
that is thriving in the midst of hardship, a life that is coming alive in the face of of loss, a disenchanted Arab Muslim Middle Eastern drug addict turned refugee who saw the power of the word of Christ in another Christian's life, opened himself up to that same word, let that word come inside of him and make him go from death to life that his life would now thrive even in the midst of losing his home, his country, his family, his religion, and his job, and even his health. He is alive, friends. It's the power of the word of Christ because it's a word of grace, not of law, a word that points you always to the one who loves you and gave himself up for you that you might have life. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear our friend Jesus, who is your very face to us. We thank you that you gave him up for our sake, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be clothed in a righteousness not our own, but his righteousness having your approval already, knowing that there is nothing we can do that will make you love us less. There is nothing we can do that will make you love us more because you love us and have chosen us and called us and adopted us and poured out upon us the seal of the Holy Spirit to give us the certainty of the coming life in the age to come. Father, we consecrate now these elements for this sacrament for holy purpose that you would preach your word of grace to us throughout this week, that we might then turn around and grant it to others. Make our hearts aflame with love for your word, Lord, because it's your word and you love us. Lord, help us to love your word by being loved first by you, that we might then love you back. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.